I'm talking to Abigail Acavia, um, who is the author of Dancing with Philoctetes, a, a book which is coming out with Punctum uh, under the Tangent imprint. Uh, I'm Sean Gerd, uh, one of the editors on Tangent, uh, and we are really pleased to have this beautiful book. And um, we're just going to talk about it a little bit. I've got some questions for Abigail, and she'll um, share some thoughts about the process that went into the writing of the book and the production of the play as well. So this book is a translation of Sophocles' Philoctetes, a uh, Greek tragedy from the fifth century BCE, uh, as well as a, a document of a production of that translation uh, in Germany in uh, 2019. And then it also comes with a, an essay that talks about the translation and the choices that went into it and the production and its, its meaning and significance. And the whole thing is a really sort of beautiful, um, quite powerful, personal and poetic statement and um, absolutely worth everybody's attention and Tangent is really, really pleased to have it. Um, so Abigail, um, why don't we start with uh, reminding ourselves of the story of the Philoctetes. You want to take us through what does the play show us? What is the kind of the tale that is told there? Sure. Okay. First of all, thank you so much for this introduction. I'm also extremely pleased to have this book come out. Um, uh, with Tangent, and I'm really excited about it. Um, Philoctetes is um, is the story of a kind of a little bit lesser known um, Greek uh, hero of the of the age of uh, the Trojan heroes, so the Trojan War, uh, friend of of Odysseus, well, enemy of Odysseus, friend of of Heracles, and the rest of the Greek fleet, the more famous ones. Um, he was on his way to Troy with the rest of them, and he got bit um, on his foot by a snake, by a kind of divine snake. And this poisonous snake um, left him with a wounded foot that festered and, and stank, and he was in excruciating pain. So both his screams and his stench made it impossible for the Greek fleet to have him on board. And they basically said, okay, we can't go on to Troy with this guy. Um, and they dumped him on an island, the island of Lemnos, on the way. In in Sophocles' version, this is a deserted island. There is absolutely no, no one on the island. Um, and he remains there for 10 long years uh, by himself, periodically suffering bouts of unbearable pain. He does have uh, the what is called the sacred bow of Heracles. So he kind of um, received from Heracles after before he died uh, his his divine bow and arrows, and that is what keeps him alive. He he hunts with with those, um, and um, ten years later, the Greeks get a prophecy that to conquer Troy they need Philoctetes and his bow and arrows. It's a little bit unclear. Do they actually need Philoctetes? Do they only need his weapon? And so Odysseus, who was the mastermind behind uh, dumping him uh, and abandoning him in the first place on Lemnos, comes up with a new uh, plot to get him back. The assumption, of course, the, the correct assumption is that he would want nothing to do with these people anymore um, and would not want to join them in conquering Troy. And so uh, Odysseus comes to Lemnos with Neoptolemus, who is the young son of Achilles, who had by this time uh, died uh, in, in Troy. And he, uh, Odysseus asks Neoptolemus to trick Philoctetes into believing him that he's also at, um, at war with, with the Greeks, so he had an argument with the Greeks. Uh, and is leaving the the is leaving the the war at Troy, and to take Philoctetes home with him to to say that he would take him with him, but actually to bring him to Troy, or to to find a way to get him off the island with him, basically. Um, and this plan starts out working. You know, they, they set out to do it, but then Philoctetes, both because he's so charismatic and like loving and trusting in a way and vulnerable just kind of wins Neoptolemus over. So gradually Neoptolemus gets the sense that 
I can't trick this person. And he gets also, um, he gets to know just how deeply he was abused by his former comrades uh, who left him there and how much he suffered um, throughout these years of solitude and pain, which of course um, exacerbated each other. But he also gets to, Neoptolemus also gets to witness Philoctetes in his pain. So right after he um, gets to try on the bow of Heracles, Philoctetes allows him to, to hold it and try it on. Um, and right after that, with Neoptolemus still holding onto the bow, Philoctetes experiences a, a paroxysm of, uh, of, one, of his, one of his pain attacks. He's, he, he's, he shouts and cries, and it's a, it's a very, very um, vocal and frightening moment. And then he passes out. And at that moment, Neoptolemus understands that he can't, he can't betray this person anymore. Um, the chorus actually tells him, now's our chance to leave. The, the guy has passed out. Um, let's go. You have, you have the bow. And he says, no, we have to, we have to stay. Um, and then should I keep going? Should I tell, should I tell the, the end? <laughs> you should tell the, well, let's see what happens. Why don't you continue and let's um, see what you do. Yeah. So, um, so this is kind of the big ethical moment that is, um, in my reading and, you know, in other people's readings, but for, for me, this was the most important moment and what kind of brought me to work on this play to begin with this, this moment of, of, of empathy as, as, um, a catalyst to um, to an ethical decision, but at the same time, um, a, a kind of a barrier to action. So the entire the entire play happens on the island, and it's all about being stuck on the island and how can we get off the island? Because nobody wants to stay. Nobody wants to be on this island, and the whole point of coming there was to get off. But Philoctetes is stuck in the island. He won't leave. He does. He will. He does not want to leave um, when he realizes that they're asking him to come to Troy, and he can't leave without other people who would take him. So, so this moment of empathy that is um, that grad. So uh, the the empathy of Neop of Neoptolemus gradually kind of ripens, but it becomes like the crux of it happens when he sees this, uh, you know, unbearable um, kind of breaking point that that the pain as a breaking point of, of, of everything that is human that Philoctetes suffers. Um, and, and at that moment, he can't move, like qu quite literally, he can't he can't go on. He can't uh, act in the way that is expected of him. So just to go back to the plot, um, Philoctetes wakes up from his um, kind of temporary coma uh, and says, uh, and, and Neoptolemus um, reveals that they actually have to go to Troy. And of course, he refuses and he says, give me, give me my bow back. And he says, I can't do that. I'm, I'm under orders. So the big the big uh, betrayal is is revealed, and then Odysseus comes back to say, "Okay, enough with all of this ethical uh, stuff. Um, we're not talking about evil. Uh, we we have a war to to attend to. Let's get out of here with you or without you. We have your we have your weapon." Um, and in so at first, Neoptolemus says, "Okay, well, what can I do? He's my commander, and he and he does actually. It seems like he's going to leave him there by himself." Um, because because Philoctetes is adamant that he would rather die on the island by himself, being eaten by birds, than join the Metroid. Uh, and then Neoptolemus uh, comes back and says, "Okay, I'm giving you back your bow," and finally consents to take him home instead of to Troy. And in the in Sophocles' original original version. Um, Heracles comes out like an, a, an actual Deus ex machina. Um, Heracles arrives and says, "Okay, guys, like you can't not go to Troy. You you got to go to Troy." 
And so then he finally consents uh, Philoctetes. Um, I had a little bit of an issue with uh, this particular um, uh, solution, dramatically and, and kind of morally. Um, but we, we, we found a different way to get Philoctetes back to Troy. But um, I think in a way that kind of um, makes it even more um, unsatisfactory, um, this kind of pull to a communal, um, a collective desire for fighting, um, which he can't, he, he can't fight off by himself because it, there's just too many other people. The chorus becomes very active in that moment for me um, in, in the production that we did. Um, oh, I should just say um, before, I mean, I'm kind of like the, the end. <laughs> I should just say uh, before, before your next question, um, so the the translation was was done in 2019, but the production was was done in 2020. So we oh. I, I translated um, uh, the play and directed it in Leipzig at English Theater Leipzig, um, and we premiered in early March 2020, um, which is um, as I'm sure people still remember just before uh, COVID. Um, and then we, you know, obviously there was lockdown and this play about uh, disease and empathy and doing the right thing got a bunch of extra um, meanings that we didn't anticipate while we were working on it. And then it was, the production was cut short, right? I mean, you weren't able to do the, the complete run. Is that right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, we even had, you know, it was that that weird moment uh, in kind of early mid-May, uh, mid-March, where it was clear that something very bad is happening, but governments weren't yet uh, sure how to react. And so I was thinking, like, we can't keep doing this before lockdown was officially um implemented in in germany before uh theaters were closed it, it became pretty obvious that gathering together in a theater is is a dangerous thing to do um but yes we didn't we didn't have uh our complete run and um that was you know that in itself like locally in terms of, i mean temp temporally in that moment was very shocking because there's always the finishing finishing a, a stage production is always an extremely weird uh exper experience of like something very 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 intensive just kind of like dissolving um but that was even you know in in this context it, it was even more uh shocking and 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 kind of uh, grief inducing because it was just like we were just snatched out of something and demanded to to stop so um, that's really interesting i wanted to talk a little i wanted to talk i wanted to ask you about the run-up and what what came before you did the translation <laughs> of the production but let's talk about the end instead because you just as you ended you talked about unsatisfactory ending in three modes three different modes of unsatisfactory endings right <laughs> the first one is sophocles's ending which as you say is like I mean, all deus ex machinas, deus ex, what's the plural of deus ex? Anyway, all of them are, they, they well, yeah, but that's the God, the just like the actual theatrical gesture is yeah. the whole, anyway, it doesn't matter. All of these uh, appearances of gods on the roof to solve whatever problem are uh, problematic and sometimes they're comical. Um, uh, mm -hmm. They always seem to move everything into quotation marks somehow in an in off-putting way. But this one is maybe the strangest because it seems the most sincere <laughs> in a weird way. I mean, Euripides is God's, it, when Euripides brings a God on the stage or floats one above the stage <laughs> on a crane, um, it, it's, it's a little bit comic. It gets a little bit yeah. meta and you have the sort of sense that he's playing with convention and, um, yeah, putting himself in quotes. But with this play, the plot really 
works itself into an unresolvable situation where you can't go forward. None of the alternatives are acceptable for various reasons. And then a god turns up and essentially pulls rank and everybody seems happy that he's done so. Which you didn't you don't like that ending. And you talk about this in the essay as well. You find that to be not just dramatically problematic, but also morally problematic. Do you want to talk about that? Like what's the what what's the ethical objection there? Yeah. Um, so I think actually dramatically, I mean, for the, for our production, it was, you know, maybe wouldn't have worked dramatically and kind of, uh, um, practically, but there is a dramatic, uh, temptation in that moment, which I think works for it while the, the moral is maybe against it. Uh, it is a very kind of, um, spectacular moment. And I think in that sense, it has that pull that can that can kind of relieve us finally, like, you know, which which the this kind of um, you know, if if this if 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 the, if the if the humans can't figure it out, then then at least there's something that in the confines of the genre, you know, ah, theater can help, can do this for us. We can, we can have this kind of magic of theater happening. Um, but the the play is very, very consistent in showing how much, you know, showing Philoctetes' integrity in saying, these people abandoned me. I don't want to fight with them. I don't think this is, um, an honorable way to behave. Uh, it's not like he's he doesn't believe in war anymore, right? There is he he is in some sense a real kind of um, uh, hero of the of the of the olden age. Uh, he does he does believe that there are certain ways to pursue glory and, but that also entails looking out for. For your friends basically and you can't you can't have one without the other um so he's very very adamant that um even if if the price is endless suffering because the, the the deal was you know come with us to troy and you will be healed and he says no i would rather suffer than fight with you at troy so to have a person say that after we see him experience really like very uncomfortable I mean it's very uncomfortable to watch and and the in reading it in Greek is kind of a different uh experience but a very uncomfortable moment of very very harsh pain and still saying I would rather suffer this pain than join you and then just have like a switch that moment is very jarring and a lot of a lot of commentators have have you know react to that as kind of what you know he's such he's such an amazingly um his his integrity as a character is so compelling that's part of why we love him so much um so what what's happening here and i think there's um you know to me there is a there's a kind of the way I read it in terms of the Greek, you know, the Greek context is that there's a kind of a very um, nuanced play of empathy there um, that actually um, Heracles's arrival in some ways kind of, you know, reminds Philoctetes of their friendship and their kind of uh, loyalty to each, to each other, but also demands from Philoctetes, some kind of, you know, empathy towards empathy in the in the kind of an ethical sense of like affinity with this uh, this stance doesn't really leave leave him a choice, but like demands uh, lining up to that. Um, so that's interesting. Can I just interrupt you? So I was sort of thinking yeah, the story you were telling there is about so part of Philoctetes' viewpoint here is that. The Greeks have broke the contract, right? Like their abandonment of him um, 
indicates they're, that they're not capable of the kind of heroic relationships that in Philoctetes' view is characteristically Greek, characteristically honorable, and is the presumption for any kind of loyalty towards that project, which in this case is the project of attacking and destroying another city, you know. Um, so he sees that what, what the social contract to have been broken by the Greeks and, and therefore not only sees no reason to join the campaign, but also thinks that there are positive reasons to not join the campaign as well, because why, you know, why would you do that for people who are not to be trustworthy and not, not living by the appropriate code? And the appearance of Heracles doesn't simply force him back, but reminds him of a layer of social affinity um, because he has this with Heracles. There's a, you know, before Heracles was a god, he was not a god, and there was a, a, yeah. a an intimate relationship between them at that point. And so the, the appearance of Heracles reminds him that he does actually have these effective relationships with Greeks and it's kind of persuasive. So that's quite surprising because I sort of thought we were going towards a, you know, I'm a God, go do your job conclusion. And you've just given a much more, uh, much more nuanced reading of Sophocles' ending, um, which kind of relocates. I mean, your reading of, Sophocles as ending would have that particular appearance um, heal the social rift that Philoctetes is living because Philoctetes becomes capable of that sympathy via the mediation of Heracles. Is that what you're saying, sort of? Yeah, I think there is a there is um, a measure of that happening. I mean, I think that was to me the way to make sense of. Sophocles's solution without just saying, oh, well, he had to somehow bring it back into the mythological story. He just like brought this, you know, he, did, he didn't do the comic meta Euripidean gesture of, ah, mortals, whatever. You know, that's not, that's not what I think what is happening. Um, and but but still there is a lot of um the responsibility is put on Philoctetes, I think, even in, in that reading. I mean, there's there's a kind of way in which he echoes um rhythmically the way that Heracles speaks. So a lot of, of my reading is is in the Greek is based on kind of affinities of of, of sound, mm -hmm. um, including rhythmic patterns. And Heracles arrives and, and does a very significant change of the rhythmic pattern from what came before. Before that, when it seemed like Sophocles is really doing this, he's giving us a, a play that ends differently from the, the tradition uh, with um, Philoctetes and, and Neoptolemus leaving to go home. And they use a different uh, meter, uh, not iambic, but also very much um, like a, a meter associated with endings, with movement and endings, um, the trochaic tetrameter. Um, so there is so so there is a very strong sense of um, of like of a togetherness between Neoptolemus and and Philoctetes doing something else, and then. Heracles is. Um, this is not something that can be translated, and we're going to have to come back to exactly. that. But like, it right. is a and really, we, and we didn't do any of it. <laughs> it's a beautiful idea that the the relationship between characters is expressed. It's almost like an, an a bodily relationship when they share a meter, and so when it's, that's that's you know I'm I'm interested in that idea. Yeah. So 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 yeah. So again. So I think there are two things happening. One is that. Um, if they, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you say uh, bodily, because I think we really should think of them dancing together in a way, which is not something I had, you know, formulated or even thought until now um, that, you know, there's so much of the, of the music of Greek tragedy that we don't have. Um, primarily what most people associate with music, which is, you know, melody. We don't know the melodies. Um, but there are very, very complex rhythmical structures um, in in the in the choral songs, especially. And there are other there are other um, rhythmic structures could be less complex, like the ones we talked about, 
but they do still uh, relate to often to movement. So they would be moving um, within that rhythmical pattern, which is a way of saying they would be dancing. They would be dancing in one way off stage. And then Heracles arrives and changes, you know, changes the beat and says, like, that is not what we're, we're not doing that dance right now. Mm-hmm. And then for me, when after such a powerful dancing together in one rhythm, that seems to like lead them off stage. Um, after that, such a strong pull to a different tune, to a different bodily, you know, relationship to, to time and space, for Philoctetes to, to join that dance, to join that rhythm is, is really like a renunciation of the empathy that he had with one person in order to align himself with the, another person. But maybe that kind of helps us feel a little less frustrated with this, you know, where's the integrity of the character if we think of it as you know, a choice that he made in the body. It's, I mean, yeah, there are so many different considerations when you translate, especially when you, when you produce Greek tragedy, like what, what are you doing? What do you want to do? Um, and it, at no point in this particular production for me was the, the, the concern to be, um, uh, loyal to the original to try to recreate something that you know gives us the sound of the original um there are so many sounds in Philoctetes and we did a lot of work with that but we weren't trying to say this is how it sounded for a Greek audience um and yeah and I should maybe I should mention it was it was a musical I mean we did consider every musical moment in the Greek as, you know, an opportunity to make music, but we, we used, you know, our, our music. We didn't try to make it sound like ancient music. Um, so, so bringing Heracles into our production would have been, you know, complicated, um, practically speaking. And so that always prompts, you know, like theater directing is like an exercise in making problems for yourself and solving them basically. And so, so, so it kind of, the impulse wasn't necessarily moral. Um, it was like, uh, that's so artificial for like, for, for an audience today to bring it a, a, a God out of nowhere, like how to make this feel right. And I think despite the reading that I suggested now, I think there is, the 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 sense of an unsatisfactory ending is something that I wanted to tap into. Um, to say like this is this is a person going against what he believes in, and he does that because there is a group around him. And even when so with with the original, Heracles offers this um, solution that is both for the greater good, like the, 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 the entire Greek army is happy, but also like harks back to their special relationship as, as Greek heroes. And, you know, I think we live in a world in which that kind of heroism doesn't exist. Um, and I didn't want to represent that ideal. So what you have left is a war thirsty, collective that Philoctetes finds himself up against. And that's what I put on stage. I mean, the choruses are the, the chorus end up being the the group that says, you know, you you can't do that. You're coming with us to Troy. And he just can't uh, resist um, physically. Mm -hmm. So there's more of a sense of um, coercion definitely than than the than with the Heracles. Heracles, I mean you could say it does do coercion, but it's like more of a 
you know, but, but, but he's a God. So, you know, okay, well, the God made me do it. So what can you do? Um, so it was bringing that back into a collective. So that's, I mean, I think that's really, um, that's a really complicated set of, set of, uh, things that happened that led to a quite complicated and intransigent ending in some ways. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's a troubling ending. So, you know, you have, um, no easy resolution there if he's you know compelled into his in a much more explicit way and when you there's a practice initially we have practical considerations right like can't translate the meter can't get that sympathy across and then on stage on in a modern theater with modern actors the deus ex machina gesture is hard to do well or hard to do at all um, and so we come up with a different conclusion, but the conclusion sort of translates practical impossibility into moral and political impossibility, right? Like we actually have the difficulty still there. It's just been modulated into a different mode that is um, in some ways more visceral in what kind of a thing, was it like a black box theater? I often feel like the, the black boxes um, are really analytical spaces and they encourage surprisingly a highly literate engagement was it that kind of a space well there was a little bit of like a proscenium but it was kind of a, um under the level of the mm -hmm. like there was, a, was there was a um kind of like a pit a tiny yeah. little pit uh -huh. and that's actually where most of the you know um action takes place right. so it's kind of on the shore um but we do have uh you know the sense of like the outside being where the audience came from or like the the up up on the back of the back of the house is where the the chorus and odysseus at the beginning come from and that's where they leave so they leave through uh in this production you know in this house they left through the audience they kind of walked off to up you know not to the out into the real um, world some and some yeah yeah exactly right so th that's the the one significant change that you made the other one which you've already kind of alluded to is also i think in some ways now appearing to be sort of the same thematically at least thematically the same and that is the that moment when neoptolemus is tricking philoctetes and um everything seems to be going well and then philoctetes has an attack and uh you know yells and screams and sings his pain and uh, that vocal expression of agony changes Neoptolemus's mind. So he, so yes. for so for you, there are there's, there's a really important nexus between vocality and empathy, which we've already talked about. Right? Like the, there's something about the way a voice, as a voice, communicates experience that is that is for you important and maybe dr dramaturgically important, but you altered that scene fairly significantly, right? Like if I recall correctly in Sophocles, that's all done as stichomythias. So stichomythias is a technical term. Am I right about that? It's dialogue, the technical term for dialogue. It's a very formal form of dialogue where Philoctetes is sort of groaning and screaming and saying, you know, don't touch me, let me lie down. And, and Neoptolemus is saying, in essence, what is going on? Um, and you, you altered that radically. Do you want to take us through how you did it differently? Well, I mean, that's interesting. I never thought of that, of those moments as like radical changes. Um, but, you know, it's, there's a lot of, in some way, Greek tragedy was like a podcast more than, I mean, in some ways it was like opera, but in other ways it was like pod, a podcast. Like you had to say, here they come. Who? I see them over there. Who, who do you mean? You know, you have to give all of this auditory information. And then it's also like, you know, put into a very formal um, structure. But that in a very intimate setting in English where, you know, you, you're sitting right across from, from uh, the actor feels very, very um, artificial. And so a lot, so I took out a lot of the, of, of the, of the verbiage, uh, a lot of the talking, especially in between. Um, and also it just is very, very long in the, in the, in, 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 in Sophocles, it's like, there's like, you know, these 
gradual peaks of like a little shout and, a, and then a little longer shout and then, you know, don't touch me and please, you know, please don't do that. And, you know, until he screams and it's, a, it's you know, maybe if I had two, uh, extra two months to rehearse, we would have found something else, but it felt like we needed to condense it much more. And that, that ended up being a situation where Neoptolemus doesn't respond in voice that much at all. And there's a very interesting, like, echoing pattern that happens in the Greek that is drawn out a lot. There's, like, little little echoes that keep uh, coming between Neoptolemus and Philoctetes that we couldn't really do. And partly it's because Greek, ancient Greek, poetic shouts have a very, you know, have, are not just like unspecified sounds. They have, they're kind of like words. So they you can write of them echo. out. Right. You, yeah. You can, it's not blah. It's. Yeah, exactly. Tatatatoy or papai or whatever it has to be. Well, papai in, 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 in the, in the case of Halakthetes, a very famous, like long papai shout. Or something like that. Don't 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 count my syllables. But um, so you can't you can't translate that, and you can't you can't. I mean that really is more of a even though it's very much a, a, a not a sung moment, not a you know a, a kind of a, there is no um, musical accompaniment in that moment. It I think that moment should be thought of much more like opera. You know, this like very, very, very long melisma of, you know, Puccini's heroine dying than then what we think of when we think of somebody shouting uh, in pain. So there's this very, very kind of interesting mix between extreme formality and a kind of um, performativity, like extra um, exuberant performativity versus uh, vulnerability and the kind of rawness of, of, of voice in, in a moment where there's nothing but voice and body. So for you, there's, um, we have to, we're gonna shift gears a little bit here. So one of the things about this book that is so valuable is that in addition to having the, the translation of the play, we also have uh, an essay that talks about your relationship to the play, which is a long-standing relationship. One of the things you say is that it's the play for you. It's the starting point. I think, you know, you talk about it as being the one that's in your head all the time. Um, uh, and that in some ways led you into the study of the classics. But there is also an example. There's a word um, in Hebrew, which I'm not going to say, you're going to say it, which sort of oh, talks okay. about, that, that talks about this interaction between vocal expression and the empathy that it can produce. Do you want to, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I think you mean Gagua, which is the yes, one. Yes, that's, uh, that's what that's what you mean that's the what one I mean. word in hebrew that i actually uh mentioned in the in in the essay which it's so interesting that you um basically connect it in your in in asking this you connect this with papai and i never thought about that um so gagua means um this is how i say it in 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 the in the book also because there's no other way to say it. It's the noun that would correspond to the verb in the sentence "I miss you." So when you miss somebody, what you feel is gagua, like it's a kind of longing or yearning or or zenzuch in in uh, German. And it's very odd, I think, that English doesn't have an appropriate uh, you know word for that. Um, and gagua is a word I use in the essay to kind of echo. It's a very echoey word and it's guttural. And it's a word that I can't say in any other language but my mother tongue. And I use it to echo a sense of like, you know, trying to hold on to relationship with with I mean there's particular relationship obviously I talk about um my sister who who died of cancer um 
I'm trying to figure out the, I should have wrote, written this down because of course in this kind of context, I can't remember uh, how many years now. Um, 14 years, I think almost. Um, and so the essay is partly about me experiencing, like thinking about seeing my sister experience her pain and being unable to like understand it or or empathize in the way that I think would have, you know, I don't know what it would have done, made sense. No, it wouldn't have made sense, but like just a way to be with another person, which I think is exactly what Philoctetes dramatizes so um, beautifully and, and, you know, brings out this, this um, impossibility of being with somebody in their pain. There's this, and in that sense, I think maybe our choice to kind of not talk uh, in that moment that we just talked about with Neoptolemus, just not finding the words, maybe that is, reflects something about the way that I, you know, experience well, you, other people's pain or this particular pain. You don't, don't find the words, but you do find, I mean, this is what's interesting. You you don't find the words, but you do find the words. I mean, you do it, it's done formally instead of being done I mean, this gesture of not being able to translate this word is just so excellent because it it is itself quite eloquent. <laughs> and in a way, it's like, I mean, um, the thing about pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pi or however many there are is that it is tr it is transcribable. It fits on a line. There are letters for all the sounds. It's an entirely linguistic construction. Um, it's not quite, it's not a word exactly, but its job is to communicate what cannot be communicated linguistically, right? So it's kind of like mm -hmm. the channel or uh, the, the, the vocalization of something that requires a different level of communication. And just, that's just what you've described uh, using, you, you know, using language, quote unquote, badly, which is to say extremely well, um, is exactly that, the fact that, that we don't, in fact, communicate the things that matter in propositional sentences. And, you know, the structure of that, the structure of the essay is in some ways like that. The essay is written in a juxtapositional form. I think this is a, a, a form that folks will recognize if they know um, the tradition of creative nonfiction that's been so influential in the last 20, 30 years. There are multiple different stories that are put together um, and you get a kind of a global picture that is bigger than the sum of all of its parts. Um, which is to say it does a lot of work through form and it, it doesn't, it says things that it doesn't say because yeah. of the form it chooses, um, which is all just mm -hmm. my complimenting you to say that this is what everything that you're saying and saying that you're not saying you're actually saying quite coherently <laughs> and in a way that's consistent with that scene in the Philoctetes. Thank I you. Think. That's so, that's so great to hear. Like that's such a, a an eloquent way to, you know, describe to to me what I did. <laughs> and I, I'm really I'm really happy if that's what if that is what the book succeeds in doing. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, there is there is. We talked about this a little bit before we started the um, the recording that there are things that for me are very present in the book that I don't actually say much about. But for example, not living where I grew up, um, not living where I wrote my PhD either, not living in, you know, I live now in Germany and my my kids were born in, in, in Chicago. So like, I have like American kids and I'm not American and we all live in, in Germany. So there's kind of this sense of, of not being at home, which is very, very important too to this the feel of Philoctetes and to his the feel of Philoctetes the play and to his um experience as a person in exile from from humanity basically um so that is is something that I um, it's always in the back of of my mind when I'm you know basically whatever I do I mean Zanzuch is like the one word where I'm like yay German thank you <laughs> but like most of the time I am in my a day-to-day -day where like I don't have that ability to to say exactly what I want maybe that maybe that's good I don't know um but you know I and and 
and there's this there's this gagua there's this yearning to you know to a past to 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 childhood a lot of a lot of the book is about like memories from when i was you know between like eight and 14 um so we should was... probably let's make this explicit so there is a, quite a lot of discussion yeah. your your can we call it a career your intense engagement with dance between the ages no, of eight and 14 <laughs> and that 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 plays a role in uh it it takes a it takes a while for it to come out but the sort of the the there's a lot of just great for from the perspective of somebody who really doesn't know anything about dance <laughs> there's a lot of really interesting stuff about being in dance school that is just interesting from itself. I think people who have had that experience will recognize that. Um, but there's also a, um, a point, um, no E, a point without an E, um, mm -hmm. and that is that um, you, in fact, have something, have or had something very, very close and intimately connected to Philoctetes' experience, which is that your dance career was ended by foot pain, right? By debility. Right, exactly. Yeah, and this is also a thing that I, you know, I connect all through grad school, which almost all of all of it I did after my sister died. I was very, very intensely aware that I am, you know, engaged in the question of how people respond to other people's pain. And I am, and this is a, a pain I'm carrying with me. This is a, a sort of an issue that is a kind of this unresolved, unresolvable question of like, you know, that that I feel very intimately that I, you know, I saw physical pain up close and I had this sense of like, I, I'm not, I can't bring the right empathy to it. Um, so that was very clear to me all the time in engaging with Philoctetes as, you know, as, as I wrote my dissertation and as I translated the play and as I produced the play and then wrote the book. But then I realized something that was sort of like too so obvious that I it was weird that I hadn't noticed it before, which is I have a foot injury, um, and I'm kind of I'm in some way, you know, I have like we share a disability, uh, Philoctetes and I, um, and and it does relate to also to a, a yearning to something that I can't attain. So I stopped. I mean, I was kind of like. A person that wasn't maybe ever going to be a dancer, but um, partly because I was such a cerebral, like uh, literary person, um, and but then I had this injury that also relate, you know, related to it. A different, you know, I ha I have an autoimmune uh, uh, disorder, which I also talk about in, in the book, and I had um, Medicaid, so you know, I know pain from different avenues. Um, and I, I I received medication that then one of its side effects was that I, I had a, a, an injury in, in the bone that made it impossible to keep dancing. So there is, you know, this exile from the world of dance, uh, which in a sense, you know, I could have just, it could have happened differently. I could have just been, you know, 41, thinking of myself, age 16, thinking I'm going to be a dancer and and still have that sense of like exile from youth but in my sense it it was it was kind of like you know unsatisfactory ending right just like something had to like something broke something um was you know the rug was pulled up from under me in the sense of like I didn't have the closure um so there's this yearning to a place that you can't go back to and I think what I try to do with a book is to show that there is that in that that that's one of the cores of what what happens in Philoctetes. There's a kind of a yearning to come back to a place which doesn't exist anymore because once you once you've been exiled, once you've been once you've experienced such pain, there you can't go back. There is no before. There is no um, reconciliation. There's no like healing that can really bring you back undo it well what you can do and this is where we're going to end i think what, what what you what you can do is occupy the yearning right so does that make sense possess the yearning yeah, definitely. live the yearning and own it find ways to express it which are new so you 
don't dance, but you direct, right? I mean, you're, you, the, 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 the relationship to, to performance has not gone away in any meaningful way. And we can kind of think about, I, I mean, I, I, I think in some ways what we're talking about is the same thing, which is that saying it isn't always the best way to communicate. Living it in a way that other people can see or hear, that can be really effective. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I, I try to, you know, you want to communicate truth, basically. I mean, as as a an artist or a writer and and a performer. I mean, my next my the 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 thing I've been doing since Philoctetes, you said I I think about it all the time. I kind of like I think I've finally let him go. Uh, but the project I was engaged in after COVID, um, I was actually on stage as well. So I'm kind of like you know, making friends again with myself as a person that can be on stage. Um, but you wanna, you know, you wanna tell the truth. And I think that was to to to, to touch people. I think that's the way. Uh, and I think that was what I was trying to do with the essay, um, which, you know, kind of came out at first, just like a thing I had to write during COVID. Like I just couldn't not write it, but then it developed into a much more elaborate thought set of thoughts about um, family and home and and pain and 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 language and and form, as you so nicely put it. Um, so yeah, but definitely being in in that pain or or the yearning um, and recognizing that pain is something that changes you. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I guess, the point. With an E. <laughs> One could say, I don't want to, I don't want to end with, here is my point. <laughs> Let's leave it unresolved then. The book is really great and it's worth everybody's attention. And Tangent is just super pleased to be able to be putting it out. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. Thanks so much for this conversation.